Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stress Life Podcast, where we believe it's everyone's right to have a less stressed life without inflammation, food sensitivities, and fatigue. I'm your host, Krista Bigler, registered dietitian and integrative nutritionist. I run a private practice, functional private practice, helping people with inflammation, food sensitivities, fatigue, eczema, the gamut, gut issues, all the things. And this is part of our Q&A episodes where people send in questions on Instagram. My Instagram handle is anti-inflammatory nutritionist and on the little speak pipe widget on the website at lessstresslife.com. And I'm going to answer your questions here. This podcast is sponsored by Rupa Health, a concierge lab service that compiles over 25 different labs into one convenient dashboard. It takes me about 30 seconds to go in, order labs, and some conventional blood labs, if ordered through the right provider, can be up to two-thirds off the direct-to-consumer direct to pricing that you can get on direct labs and other sites like that. So for practitioners, if you haven't checked out Rupa Health, go there now, check them out, sign up for a free account, tell them I sent you, and start enjoying it. All right, so today we're going to talk about keratosis pilaris, autoimmunity and endocrine disrupting chemicals, and what it means if you're kind of hangry or having increased hunger overall. So the first question I received was, can you help give me some pointers for both my 13-year-old and 11-year-old daughter with keratosis pilaris? Sure. Let's talk about what keratosis pilaris is very basically. And I'm going to talk about this from a context of clinical experience. And I actually did do a continuing ed module for an integrative dermatology website that their entire premise is to provide highly researched continuing education for different doctors and dermatologists. And so keratosis pilaris was on my list of skin conditions to look at related to fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. And I'm going to, I'm going to lean on that a little bit as well, because it actually dispelled or kind of opened my eyes to some thoughts about that. So first of all, keratosis pilaris, also known as unofficially chicken skin, it's kind of that uh, bumpy, pokey skin, it's usually on the back of the arm below the shoulder. That's where it commonly presents. And the reason that it's kind of bumpy and pokey is because there's keratin buildup 
below the skin and it's kind of blocking that opening of the hair. So it causes this rough and bumpy skin overall. So we see this more commonly with people who have overall different skin presentations. And I'm going to briefly just, I mean, I think that the overall treatment approach isn't super deep. There are some topical exfoliants that get used, but that's kind of just dealing with that surface level, which is fine. That's kind of how skin things are. But in practice, actually for a long time in integrative medicine, I think it was, I felt that it was commonly recognized as a vitamin A retinol deficiency, fat soluble vitamin. When I dug into the research, this was actually a year ago and now I'm quite a bit more into vitamin A, but When I dug into the research, this actually stemmed back from a paper in the 1930s. It was really hard to find. And beyond that, I couldn't find great data around it. So it doesn't hurt to give that a try. A really great food-based source of vitamin A and a synergist, because if you, this is like a whole story. I feel like now I have to give you the context of retinol vitamin A. First of all, retinol vitamin A is the animal-based form of vitamin A. Beta carotene from carrots, orange vegetables, that gets converted in your mammalian body into retinol. And so retinol in a food-based sources would be like cod liver oil. And in nature, nature puts about three times the vitamin A in synergy with vitamin D. So cod liver oil is a dose of both, but in what the way nature intended it to be a higher dose vitamin A. So cod liver oil would be my preference for vitamin A dosing from a food-based perspective overall. You can do 10,000 IUs of vitamin A for a short time. I would say for a kid, if you're not being monitored, I'd do the shorter term. You don't want to be doing long-term vitamin A by itself without some kind of probably supervision, most likely unless it's food-based source. And for those that are pregnant or trying to get pregnant, um, there's some concern around that potentially as well. But vitamin A in general And conversion of that could be an issue with keratosis pilaris. And the other major thing I see with keratosis pilaris is gluten, unfortunately. So it doesn't hurt to do a little bit of a trial from even myself. That was actually the primary sign and symptom that I was having exposure to gluten when I was more sensitive to it. And so I would actually have keratosis pilaris build up or show up when consuming gluten. So those are the most common practice-based interventions that I see making a difference, aside from getting very holistic, getting into the gut, changing overall the mechanism of food sensitivities and trying to improve and and reduce the sensitivity to that overall. All right. The next question is, Hey, I appreciate your account so much. Three of five of us in my family have autoimmune issues. I've recently learned about the effects of endocrine disrupting chemicals and it's crazy. Do you have an experience with this? This is such a loaded question because my brain's like, Oh, let me just get into why you have autoimmune issues, but I'll just back up because this person who we don't have a name, because when we copied all these questions over from Instagram, we didn't bring people's names, which is lame. So Uh, so we don't know this person's name. Sorry about that, but endocrine disrupting chemicals. So I recently was working on a lesson for clients on thyroid issues and thyroid dysfunction. And, you know, I care a lot about this. If you scroll back to the episode where I talk about when you're not feeling fine, but your labs say you're fine, thyroid edition. So I went off on quite a tangent about my most recent feelings around thyroid issues at that time. But I was working on a lesson about this and I came across a paper where one entire page of the paper was dedicated to 150 different endocrine disrupting chemicals that interfere with the thyroid working properly. So, and it was divided by the mechanism in which it inhibits. So there's so many things that have to happen for the thyroid, which by the way, thyroid could be interchanged. That word could be used interchangeably with metabolism in my opinion. So think you got a metabolic problem, you think you have a metabolism problem. 
what you're saying is this is a thyroid problem, regardless of what the blood test says. So there's so many things that need to go into that working really well. And the endocrine system includes the thyroid, it includes the pancreas, et cetera. And so it's very important because it hugely affects, I mean, it's, it's massively important for all hormones and for blood sugar balance, et cetera. So it's huge for any kind of energy and stamina, et cetera. So endocrine disrupting chemicals are things that are known to impair these endocrine organs, including our pancreas and thyroid, which are a really, really big deal. And so essentially we have endocrine disruptors everywhere. Most commonly ones that you've heard of would be like BPA, right? Which we've kind of hopefully more so tried to eliminate from, from things, um, tea bags in their little tiny plastic tea sachets, um, the lining of cans, uh, the receipt paper that you get from the grocery store, um, just so many things. Cookware can be in a, a source of endocrine disruptors. So it's actually really intense endocrine disruptor world. Um, this is where people usually spend the bulk of their time learning about. There's a lot of personal care and beauty products out there that kind of have it as part of their mission to reduce the toxic burden to women and to people in general. So I always say when we're thinking about endocrine disruptors, think about what you inhale and what touches your skin the most. So you're laying in your bed, what is your detergent like? What do you smell in your house? Do you have um, fragrances? Fragrances are a really great endocrine disruptor as well. And so all of those things can disrupt the way that your organs and therefore your energy and your hormones are produced. So yeah, there's a lot to that. But if we just kind of go through our life and walk through our day and say, okay, when I wake up in the morning, what is my skin touching? What am I putting on my skin? What touches my skin the most throughout the day? Um, what are things washed in? What do I smell in my home? Are, is the air clean, et cetera? That's, that's how I kind of think about endocrine disruptors. Um, if I just look at it from a position of like our world is toxic, I already know it's pretty toxic. I just minimize my toxicity and improve my output my ability to drain and get rid of things. And that's kind of how I, I approach detoxification overall. We have a quiz and a whole masterclass kind of on this topic, not even really about endocrine disruptors, but just in general about supporting drainage and detoxification, because I think it's a big deal. It's a big part of my story. I don't have very good liver genetics and um, it's an important me keeping my drainage open is a huge part of having good energy and having clear skin. So there's a lot that can be discussed related to endocrine disruptors. It can be inspiring and overwhelming. And sometimes after you've had enough inspiration, it's just time to take action, swapping out plastics, just going through your life and kind of like identifying little things that could be improved. So you don't have that impacting your life, trying to filter the water, take the fluoride out, all the things. So that'll be my comment on endocrine disrupting chemicals. Otherwise, it can feel like a mountain and we can just do one thing at a time. All right. Speaking of things feeling like a mountain, here's another question that says, I think this was in response to a story that I did maybe on Instagram about adrenals not being in a great place. So adrenals are the bean shaped glands that sit on top of your kidneys. They're responsible for hormone production that includes cortisol, which is, is the essential stress hormone, aldosterone, which helps control blood pressure overall, and DHEA, which does have an impact on controlling and regulating blood sugar. So this question that helps answer the question right away. This question says, so are you saying that if your adrenals are struggling, which I've walked through healing a few times, okay, big red flag, then your appetite increases? It's 
Never been an issue for me, and I'm not presenting with my normal adrenal symptoms, but man, I could literally eat all day, like way more than normal, and I can't quite figure out why I'm so hungry. It's just like a lot of things boiled into these couple sentences, but I'm going to focus on the increased appetite and kind of try to respond to that question first. So if your adrenals are in a low place, so I would say there's, this is my analogy for how adrenals are kind of being pressed on. So you're either driving the speed limit and you have normal cortisol rises and, and decreases. So you're driving the speed limit and you're, and you're adjusting to the speed limit of life or you're speeding all the time literally in all the ways. So your cortisol is running high or you've been speeding so long, you're burning through gas so quickly that you're out of gas and then you're running on empty. And after you're running on empty, that looks like more extreme exhaustion. It looks like you're more sensitive to things. Just all kinds of goofy symptoms can present. You can have things that kind of feel panicky. You can have heart palpitations, all kinds of things. So if your adrenals are in a they've run out of gas situation, that's a whole big topic, I think. But if they are really struggling, that's essentially cellular damage or mitochondrial or cellular damage. And if you have cellular damage, then how could your glands produce hormones in the amounts that they're supposed to? So you may struggle with DHEA production as one option, and that can affect how your blood sugar is controlled. So the people who really have struggling adrenals, they actually may need to eat. It's very uncomfortable because sometimes the way we got into this situation was actually one major way is under eating and overtraining and overstressing. And so sometimes if people have really drained adrenals or they're just, they don't have great performance in that area, they need to re essentially rebuild these cells for this organ to function properly. They may need to eat somewhere between every two to four hours, actually. So it feels a little bonkers sometimes to people. Um, that's one potential reason that this person might want to eat, eat more, but here are a couple other, like if it's overall appetite increase, um, and so I'll give you some other red flags. If your overall appetite is increasing, you might look at your activity level changing. So a lot of times our activity level has increased in some capacity and that increases our overall hunger because our need for energy increases. So one example is someone who, and actually changing your exercise. So moving from strength to cardio or cardio to strength can impact, um, how you're using fuel and, and nourishment. And it can actually really change as well. And you can really need more carbohydrates or something like that. And without those, you may feel like you need to sleep for an entire day, actually. Um, actually, one big red flag sign of adrenals not being in great shape is you do something that's like cardiovascular exercise and you feel worse or more exhausted typically. So that's a, that's a thought. And then one last thought about having just a really big appetite. Um, it would be, I would ask, Hey, is, is there actually hanger going on right now? So meaning, are you hungry, angry? Is it like blood sugar instability? Cause if there's blood sugar instability, we could go back to adrenals are in a struggling place. And we could also go to our, do are you having blood sugar dysregulation, dysregulation, like your blood sugar is not stable because of how your diet is? Are you not getting enough protein? Are you not getting enough carbs or digesting them properly? So there's all of that regular eating time intervals, et cetera. And then also how's your gut health? So if your gut health is in a rough place, you're not actually utilizing, breaking down and utilizing those nutrients. 
So, and that leads to other issues because there are nutrient patterns related to blood sugar maintenance in our body, including magnesium and chromium and all these nutrients. And so it becomes a kind of a multifold problem. But if the gut is not in good shape, meaning there's some imbalances, bacterial fungal overgrowth, you can be really hungry or be craving sugar. So I hope that answers that one. Sometimes everyone's like, oh, I have a simple question. No, no, they're not simple, which is why the questions are coming here on the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, share it with a friend, write a review below. That's actually the best thing you could possibly do is review the podcast so other people can find it and share it with others. So I hope you do one of each and submit a question to anti-inflammatory nutritionist Instagram account, which is mine, or go to lessstresslife.com and drop a little question in the speak pipe widget. We'll add it to our list and I'll answer a few every week. Have a good one.